Hi everyone, welcome to Zooming In on ID, a new series of short podcasts that gives us the chance to get to know some of the scholars in LSE's International Development Department. I'm your host, Duncan Green, and with me today is ID Professor Jean-Paul Faguet, universally known as JP. So I'm going to call you JP, JP. I hope that's okay. Great, absolutely. Um, Jean-Paul, apart from being a, a Professor of the Political Economy of Development, is co-program director of the MSc in Development Management. So he, he runs a big chunk of the uh, department's um, courses as well. Um, so Jean-Paul, tell us a bit about yourself, um, background, where did you grow up, this kind of stuff. Okay, sure. Um, I'm like a lot of people at the LSE and like a lot of our students, I'm, I'm a thoroughly um, mixed up, uh, sort of confused person in terms of where I'm from. Um, my, my father's French, as you may have guessed from the name. My mother's from Colombia, which you probably won't have guessed. Um, I, I was born in Canada. I grew up mainly in the US, but the place I've lived longest in my life now is London via Bolivia. So when people say, where are you from? I, I honestly have a difficult time. I usually just cut to one of those, but it is, it's not really entirely honest, to be honest. So we have a deracinated head case. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Excellent. All right. And then, so once you worked out whether you were from anywhere, what did you, how did you get into development and this work? Ah, well, so I, I studied political science at university, but I did it as political philosophy and then realized at the very end of that, that I had I'd done no economics and actually economics was rather interesting. So then I tried to make up for that by doing a master's um, in public policy at the Kennedy School, which I, where I did as much economics as I could and came out of that thinking that I was kind of half an economist um, and went to work for the World Bank in Bolivia because what I wanted to work on was international development. Um, so I was actually, you know, arguably doing some international development in my mid-20s in a really tiny office where I was the third of three professional staff running for Bolivia, quite a big investment program. Um, and I what, completely... What was happening in Bolivia when you were there? Well, so th this was, I was there for the transition into power of Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, who, when he then returned about a decade later, got chased out of power during the rise of Evo Morales. So that whole transformation of the country happened on Goni Sanchez Rosada's second watch. I was there during what, what some people call the neoliberal phase where the, the Bolivians were pushing really jaw-dropping reforms in terms of their ambition um, and, and just the swinging nature of, of, of policy reform in Bolivia. Um, and I got to participate in that. And among other things, they decentralized the country, which then became the, the thing that I focused on my PhD. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute, but just, I, I, so I was, I was probably your ideological enemy at this point, because I was <laughs> um, writing about um, uh, Bolivia and Latin America in the mid-80s and saying it's a terrible neoliberal plot and structural adjustment's a bad thing, and what on earth is Jeff Sachs doing flying into Bolivia with his structural adjustment program and saying, oh, it's landlocked, I never realized. And all this kind of stuff. So did you ever have to work with Jeff Sachs on this, by the way? I nearly bumped into him standing outside the hotel where he was staying as I was walking to work one day. Um, other than that, I never worked directly with him, but I had to deal with a lot of the, the legacy of that stuff. So I was... Whoa, I, I was, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> please, legacy of that stuff, explain that. So I, I was part of the good side of the World Bank. I was working on health, education, early childhood development, rural development and social investment. The, the single biggest thing I did 
was a social investment fund which worked on health education and rural development. And I also worked on the education reform project which wanted to, to remake education by extending it into rural areas because a lot of rural areas were basically unserved or underserved by schools and to reorient all of the education system away from tertiary education towards primary education and to, to start um, bilingual education because most Bolivians in rural areas don't speak Spanish. They don't grow up speaking Spanish. So for their first educational experience to be, you know, trying to learn Spanish literature or mathematics in the Spanish language is totally confusing because those kids don't speak Spanish, right? So we were trying to, to really shake up the education system in a lot of positive ways. Um, but a lot of what we were doing was, was trying to make up for the enormous deficit in education and health that Bolivia had acquired thanks to the, the hyperinflationary crisis of the mid 80s and then also structural adjustment pushed by your friend Jeff Sachs and others, which ended up completely gutting the, the education and health systems, although that's not what they were supposed to do. The, the problem is that when you, when you slash the budget in a country that's in a deep fiscal crisis, then who gets slashed? Well, it's not the army that gets slashed because they're politically powerful. It's not the ministry, ministry of industry that gets slashed because they're also politically powerful for different reasons. It's health and education. So here you were in Bolivia actually helping people. What on earth possessed you to become an academic? <laughs> well, <laughs> oh dear, you, you have to buy me a couple of drinks and I, I'd spill all the beans, Duncan. Um, how, how can I put this tactfully? Um, ab about a year and a half into my three-year time with the World Bank in Bolivia, I, my, my heart kind of shifted and, and I crossed the table to sit with my Bolivian colleagues. So to give you an idea, physically, really, we, a mission would come down from Washington and I'd be sitting with my World Bank colleagues, but my, my head, and first my heart and then my head crossed the table and was sitting with the Bolivians. And I thought on a number of things, the Bolivians were right and we in the bank were wrong. And at some point I realized this just couldn't continue. Uh, we call that going native. You went native. Yeah, yeah, I went native. I went native in a really big way. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. <laughs> all, you know, and I realized that all of my friends were Bolivians. I had made really close friendships with the people I worked with. I worked with my colleagues, and especially the ones in the office in Bolivia. I respected them a lot. But in terms of the big institutional position, especially when you had that changeover in, in the government that, that I mentioned earlier, and the new government came in, they were really they were pushing some extraordinary reforms. That, that, had, that were called different things use, using different language to what the World Bank was recommending, but there were substantially really interesting reforms, many of which went in the direction the, the bank wanted, but the bank was just too blind to, to national variation and to the language that the Bolivians were using to realize that what the Bolivians wanted to do was actually, you know, was in line with what the bank was recommending. And the bank, meanwhile, was saying, don't do it this way, do it the way the Argentines did it. That's a better way of doing it because the Argentines just swallowed the World Bank pill. And, and that was wrong. It was just dead wrong. Yeah, doing what the Argentines do is often not a great <laughs> yeah. right. um, We're going to have to reluctantly rem uh, leave Bolivia and get on to research and, and, and COVID. Um, so decentralization, you lived it in Ganebropia, in, in your own flesh in Bolivia. Um, talk about your research on decentralization since then. 
Right, so I, I, I watched them implement it and I had nothing to do with that. I just, that was at the tail end of my time there. They announced a decentralization program and I didn't realize at the beginning and nobody realized that what they were doing because they called it the law of popular participation. But when I finally caught on to this shortly before leaving, I thought, wow, this is really, it's fantastic. It's, it's a deep, um, impactful reform that's going to change the, not just the, the way that money flows in the budget, but it's going to change the way that democracy works in this country. So I went to the LSE and I did an MSc in economics, which is when I realized that I really wasn't even half an economist before, even though my job title said economist uh, at the World Bank. Um, and then I did a PhD in the International Development Department in the political economy of decentralization in using Bolivia as my core case study and, and the main source of evidence. Um, and it just became my passion, which I then went on to, to work on for 25 years nonstop. And I've only recently started to get away from that. But obviously, I, you know, when you, when you devote so much time to something, I'm still working on decentralization now. Can, can you summarize your passion in three minutes? No. <laughs> but Give, I it can try. Give it a go. I can try, yeah. Um, so the thing about decentralization is, is that it, it falls under the... The, the motto of taking government closer to the people, which is it, it's both true and it's an excuse. So people use this when they want to get away from the, the really interesting but difficult problems of what decentralization does and, and the good and bad effects it can have on the country. So what it can do is, is to deepen democracy. So it's, it's useful to think in your head of, of what decentralization is. It's going from a situation where all the, the interesting and important public decisions are being taken at the national level by national government in a capital city and devolving authority and resources for this decision making down to, to regional and local levels of government. And so it deepens democracy by taking public policy issues that mainly affect a particular locality, which can be a city or a village or even a hamlet, and, and placing those resources and that authority there where those people take those decisions that mainly affect them. And so it, it makes democracy much more real in smaller and smaller groups of people who interact with each other much more um, intensively. And so it, it, it brings democracy down to, to a level where it makes it real and human for people. And so it just makes democracy better. And it, it makes a democracy more robust because you have multiple levels of decision-making. So I mean, you're seeing this now in the United States of America, the world's greatest democracy, supposedly, where, where the, the central government goes completely haywire on a number of things, but the situation is rescued at the state and local level because you still have in many places competent authorities with local accountability, with democratic accountability that can take decent decisions and make up for a national government that's sort of gone berserk. But for decentralization to happen, somebody in the center has to opt to give up power. Yeah, absolutely. How, I mean, this is, this is Turkey's voting for Christmas. How does this happen? Absolutely. So, so I call this in, in my research the, the, the black hole problem of decentralization. How do you, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the impossible first mover problem. Nobody gets into politics to give power and resources away to other people they can't control, which is a good definition of decentralization. So how does it happen? Um, I, my, my more recent research tries to shine a light on this, and I mean, other people have worked on this too, where decentralization ends up solving some other problem, which is orthogonal in academic speak um, to decentralization, meaning- Unrelated. Would be unrelated, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you, yeah. So, so for example, they're, they're trying to, to hold a coalition together in parliament, or they're trying to, 
to undermine the opposition party and, and they think decentralization is going to achieve this. And so they pass a decentralization reform, which is then in the best case has all these other effects which are positive in another, a bunch of other fields which are unrelated to gutting the opposition. But that's what makes them do it. Right? Okay, fascinating. Or South, South Africa. So Nelson Mandela, right, the secular saint of, of the world, was trying to negotiate a peaceful transition to democracy where you had a very, very powerful white minority that controlled the army. How do you do that, right? Because the, the, the white minority has called the army out against the black majority repeatedly over generations. How do you get that agreement? So the, the whites the, and, and uh, de Klerk saw the writing on the wall. He saw that some kind of transition was necessary, but he needed to, to calm the white minority. The way they did this was via decentralization. So the whites knew they were going to lose national power, but they were going to remain in control of one or two subnational units and a bunch of cities. And so they were willing to give up power on that basis. But if they thought they were going to be wiped from power completely nationwide, because they were going to hand over a to a democratic black majority that was going to hold all the keys to all levels of power, you know, some of them wouldn't have gone with it and you wouldn't have had a peaceful transition. That's a, a kind of weird flipping of separate development. I mean, that, that's very odd. <laughs> Okay, um, can we can we talk briefly about COVID? So this yeah. on the face of it, this doesn't seem particularly connected to COVID. But have you found that decentralized systems are better, as you described them in the states, uh, at responding to COVID? Or what what is your special specialism on decentralization? What insights has that given you on what's going on with COVID? Yeah, so I think this is really interesting. I, I at this point it's. It, it's insights as in speculations or informed speculations. It's not much more than that. The, the proper academic studies are going to be done, you know, they're going to be ready between five and 10 years from now. But what we can see from very early evidence at this stage, and I, I invite you to, to think about, and all our listeners to think about four cases. Um, the US and Germany is two federal cases on opposite ends of the spectrum in, term, in terms of failure and success in dealing with COVID, apparently, as far as we can tell today. Um, and also, um, Vietnam and, let's see, Vietnam and the Philippines. So on the positive side, you've got Germany and Vietnam that have been extremely successful in dealing with the COVID pandemic, much more successful than, than other, in the case of Vietnam, other countries that are far, far, far richer. And, and, and you know, one is developed and one is not developed. So it's sort of a nice comparison against on the other side, an, another highly developed versus undeveloped countries um, that, that have been really seriously unsuccessful. In the case of the US, it rapidly became, you know, the basket case of, of, of international efficacy in, in a COVID uh, response. Germany and the US are federal countries, highly decentralized countries, and been that way for a long time. Um, Vietnam is a highly centralized country. Uh, the Philippines is sort of the third dimension of comparison. The Philippines is a decentralized country at a very similar level of development to Vietnam and with an almost identical number of people, right? So, so what does this tell us? When, when we go around and we look at countries that have done better versus countries that have done worse, what you see is that success is down to, to a very early aggressive action that does something to curb diseases that are rising exponentially. So when you've got something like a COVID pandemic, it's a disease that left to its own in the state of nature has an ex exponentially increasing rate of infection and hence of death, right? So there's a huge bonus to, to early action and to aggressive action 
to, to try to control the spread of the virus and to get information about where the hotspots are, do contact tracing, isolate those people that are infected or you think might be infected, um, and, and just cut off the, 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 the explosive march of the disease very early. Some countries do this well, other countries do this badly. So far, there, there's, no, um, there's no connection to decentralization or federalism, none whatsoever. It makes right? you think that a centralized system would be more effective at this. Yeah, because yeah. Won't go. That's but right. You're not seeing that. I'm, I'm not so. So, what, what I'm saying is that a highly centralized system sort of puts all the eggs in one basket, right? So, I, I think so. What you're saying is right. The first intuition is a highly centralized system, especially of health information, right? Um, and and in, in terms of, of firm guidelines and, and firm guidance to the population of what's going on, a highly centralized chain of command is what you want. Now, you can have that in a centralized system or decentralized system. You can, you can have a very highly centralized public health authority like the US Centers for Disease Control, which is highly effective and, and was the world champion as recently as 2014 with the Ebola crisis, where the public response and indeed the medications were developed by the American CDC based in Atlanta, Georgia, which defeated Ebola in Africa. No? So the fact that the U.S. is one of the world's most decentralized, most federal countries wasn't an impediment to, to that success. The problem is that when the, the centralized government in a centralized state <clears throat> does the wrong thing and, and, and goes off the rails, then there's nobody else to make up for that. You have all <clears throat> in the wrong basket. So exactly, you put exactly. So in, in the U.S. where you have success and some successes, some local successes in dealing with COVID is places like New York and especially California. So the, the earliest outbreaks happened in New York and California. California was far more aggressive and, and far more responsible in terms of their response to it. And they also benefited from having a smaller initial outbreak than New York. In, in New York, they had a, a, they were the other initial outbreak, but it was bigger because of greater connectivity, because it just sort of happenstance, people came from Italy and China and just spread it very rapidly in New York. So what um, you would, predict from what you just said is that you have a wider range of performance in centralized systems because of the eggs in one basket phenomenon yeah. and that you'll get a sort of middle of the road kind of not bad performance in more decentralized systems do you think that's a reasonable hypothesis i think it's a reasonable hypothesis so so i would you know my, my candidate right now for world champion in response to uh, to COVID is vietnam right oh. this communist no. dictatorship no turkmenistan it hasn't had a single case of COVID. if you believe it, president. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so no, no, I'm going to make, I'm gonna make my case. No, no, I, yeah. I'm going to make my case to you. Um, Vietnam is a neighbor of China. They had very early infection um, from, from no later than, than January, probably in December, right? What do they do? They declare a national emergency in January, right? To this date, Vietnam has had 327 confirmed cases of COVID nationwide in a country of 100 million people, so one third the size of the United States, 327 cases total, and zero fatalities. Phenomenal. Why? Because they acted incredibly aggressively, incredibly forcefully, because they've got these very highly centralized networks of public health action in which they've invested a huge amount, also because they benefited from combating SARS just a few years ago, right? And they learned from that. They learned lessons that other countries didn't bother learning. And they, they kept large numbers of public health officials that reached down from the, the big city research centers and universities and governments down into urban neighborhoods and into rural hamlets 
and these networks can can give advice and can also control people and they went the extra step of isolating people who were infected and this is what the us and the uk didn't do which is why the, these things exploded there okay jean paul Fage, we could go on for hours i think this journey from the world bank to the vietnamese communist party is fascinating uh, <laughs> i just wish we could carry on but we ha we've run out of time thank you very much for coming on zooming in thank you it's a great pleasure thank you Duncan.